I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. This is one of a number of special podcasts from the Shenong Society's day-long conference on Chinese herbal medicine. Our first conversation here is with Kevin Ergol. We're taking a look at some regulations behind herbal medicine that you may not know about, but it would be good to be informed about. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. Like our simple needle, being a part of this solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. 
You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Hey friends, I've got Kevin Ergill with me. Kevin is one of the speakers here at the Shenong Society Conference, and we are taking a little time to go more deeply into some things that all y'alls that do herbs, whether you're bagging them up or compounding them out of granules or whatever, you probably need to know about. There is some background stuff here that most of us don't consider when it comes to the laws of this country uh, and also uh, future uh, possibilities that we need to be paying attention to. And Kevin has some great information for us about that. So we're going to have a conversation here about things in the background legally that we should know about. Kevin, welcome to Geological. Thanks very much. It's nice to be here. Good to have you. So we had a little conversation previous to this one, and there are some laws that you started telling me about, and it totally took me by surprise. I've been doing this for 20 years, and there's some things in the background here that I never really knew about, but you've got some information on. Could you just give us a a brief overview to start with on what this stuff is? Well, let's let's look at this a minute. I think what I'm going to do, if it's all right with you, is sort of start off with the law that's kind of the most critical piece of regulation and then maybe back up a little bit and put it in context. The, um, the act that we were talking about the other day is the Dietary Supplements Health and Education Act that was passed in 1994. And I think to some extent, practitioners may be you know, faintly aware of this. Um, it... At the time, it was a piece of legislation that essentially prevented the FDA from independently taking action against herbs and other natural products by treating them all as if they were drugs. And so the act did did some very specific things. It created a category of products called dietary supplements, which which we're all kind of familiar with because now here we are, um, 2019, so literally uh, 20, close to 25 years later, uh, we all kind of talk about dietary supplements. And, and it's a huge business. It's an enormous business. And and frankly, that's why, why we got this law in the first place. Um, Tom Harkin and... Uh, or in Hatch, both representing states with a significant dietary supplement producing companies, vitamins, herbs, natural health, uh, were successful in getting this legislation passed. And it was actually great legislation. FDA, as, as I think everybody's sort of generally aware, came into being around 1906 and came into existence, you know, to protect the public. Uh, we had lots of issues with adulterated, unsafe drugs. We had lots of issues with food quality. Uh, there were lots of 
unethical activities that were not illegal, drugs containing dangerous things that people weren't being told about. And FDA was a successful project. It uh, grew up in 1938, I believe. It, it expanded its scope. And again, people may or may not be aware, FDA is charged with keeping a close eye on food safety, uh, drug products, also overseas medical devices, cosmetics. And with the act of 1994, dietary supplements moved into a specific place in FDA's regulatory process. And the clue is that word, that there's two words, dietary supplement. Because what FDA was told was if people sell a product that you can consume by mouth that's safe based on the available information and beneficial to health or necessary or desired in a human diet, you can't act against this product using drug drug rules. You've got to act against it or regulate it using these new rules for dietary supplements. The uh, key aspect of that was that dietary supplements l- were moved directly under food regulation. Where where had they been prior to in, that? In the middle of nowhere. This this was the thing. They were a constantly contested product. Um, they they had sort of an ambiguous status, and FDA was looking at a whole range of things and essentially making it very clear to the industry that they were uncomfortable with many of the products being sold and many of the claims. So if you look at what the act did, it's an interesting thing. It, it created this, this term, dietary supplement, and it said it can be used to supplement the diet. And it can include vitamins, and minerals, herbs, other botanicals, amino acids, enzymes, organ tissues, glandular products, metabolites, and it can be extracts or concentrates. And this was a great piece of legislation for our community. Although one of the problems is we still, as a whole, generally, don't really understand what it what it might or might not mean. Because we practice Chinese medicine, Chinese herbal medicine, whatever you'd like to call it. And we diagnose and treat disease. I mean, in some instances, we, we carefully describe our activities to avoid issues around that. But at the end of the day, that's really what we do. I mean, we represent a you know, 2,500-year-old tradition of diagnosing and treating disease using these, these tools. So one of the first things we ran into was the problem with ephedra, which probably most you know, listeners are aware that after quite a bit of controversy and after the diet supplement industry marketed mm-hmm. quite a few products containing ephedra and caffeine, there were problems with, as well there should be, although I'll tell you from, from a sort of ancillary point of view, the diet products, as long as you use them appropriately, were, were what they claimed to be. 
the the real problem was with the so-called energy boosters, the training fuels, and these entirely illegal products that were sold as alternatives to street drugs, things like herbal ecstasy, for instance. And one of the things we saw, and I guess I should comment on, is FDA did not like the Dietary Supplements Health and Education Act very much, which I'm going to call DSHEA from now on, because that's the short form. Um, and FDA's response to Deshay was to claim that it was unable to regulate. Mm-hmm. So let, let me make sure I've got this straight. On one hand, we've got Deshay, and it's it's create it's taken what we do from the middle of nowhere, completely unregulated. It's put it under some form of regulation. We're calling it dietary supplements, and it's under the auspices of the FDA now. In that. Mm-hmm. through that particular category, through that particular means that they have of paying attention to these things. Okay. We're, we're not a drug, you know, I mean, we're not, we're not regulated in that way, but we have, there's some oversight and, and the FDA gets involved through the oversight that they have permission to do so via Deshay. Uh, that, that's correct. And you, you made a very important point. And I think maybe this is a good time to talk about this sort of second aspect of this. Because our community sort of collectively heaved a sigh of relief in 1994 and, and said, okay, we're, we're safe. Um, in, let's see... I want to get the year right. Um, when when the regulations were finally published by FDA, uh, which occurred in about 2006, close close to 12 years af- after <laughs> they had been requested, uh, the proposed rule actually, pardon me, came out in 2003, about seven years after or nine years after it should have what been t- done. What took them um, so long? Well, this this really there's a lot of history in here, and I can mention two herbs that are a big part of this history. Mm-hmm. One of them was ephedra, and the other one was the uh, the substitution of guanfangji mm-hmm. for fangji, and the aristolochic acid contamination. And both of those stories indicate sort of what FDA's strategy was, because from 1994 to um, about 2006, or rather 2003, FDA essentially said, we, we're not being allowed to regulate these potentially dangerous products. And so I mentioned herbal ecstasy, which was a street drug substitute containing mm-hmm. mahuang. That was illegal under every relevant federal and in many cases state laws, because it's not legal to sell something that is a, a illegal drug substitute. DEA, for instance, has very clear rules about this. Um, FDA simply refused to act, claiming that its hands were tied. And in the end, it actually took congressional action to get FDA to move against ephedra. Now, why would it, they not want to move against it? Well, our opinion, because I'm sure that I probably would receive vehement disagreement from the FDA, and I respect the agency. I think does useful things. That's over the uh, the years was that FDA wished that Shea would be changed, would be amended, and would return to it the kind of author- regulatory authority that it had 
before the act passed. Because before the act passed, FDA had targeted other herbs and had it wound up in, in court fights, but it also had the ability to take, you know, kind of unilateral action under its its regulatory authority. So even even though at that time these things weren't really regulated. Well, they not really regulated <laughs> is a tricky expression. They were under FDA's authority, mm-hmm. and FDA tended to look at them as drugs. If they decided it was a drug-like substance, they could target it. Going back to your statement, they're not drugs. They're not drugs in regulation, dietary supplements. But remember, I mentioned we're we're using these substances to treat disease. Mm-hmm. As soon as someone makes what's called a drug claim, like if you go to the supermarket and you browse the supplement section and you see something called sleep, sleep better, on the back, it'll have a compliant label. Maybe it'll have Swanzao Ren or maybe it'll have Valerian um, or maybe it'll have all those two and melatonin. And it'll say promotes restful night sleep. That's what we call a structure function claim. That pertains to the normal function of the human body and normal physiology. If it's said, So you can claim that, but you can't claim this will cure your insomnia. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's exactly correct. That then constitutes a drug claim. So we, we now live in an interesting environment. And we've had some benefits over the years. Um, well, let me, let me before I apologize, um, before I go on. So that was, ephedra kind of was left until a crisis emerged. And in the end, FDA was forced to act. Similarly, um, the, contempt, the substitution of guanfungi for hanfungi, uh, the aristolochia for the stephania, um, that emerged as a significant object of concern internationally and to a lesser extent with the U.S. And FDA s- delayed action, even though it had full regulatory authority, until its former director, I believe it was David Kessler, actually publicly shamed them into an action of enforcement. And that was when they they made the import bans and required that there be assessment for the presence of aristolochic acid. So historically, FDA really had a reluctance to, to actualize the Shea. They finally did that in 2003. They put out their initial rule for what are cur- called current um, good manufacturing practices. And that's where things got very, very interesting for our profession. Because those rules, you know, at the intro, you talked about whether you're compounding granules or bagging up herbs. Under the um, current good manufacturing practices and the definitions and rules that the FDA published in 2003, if I um, step into my dispensary and pull two herbs from two separate bottles and drop them together in a plastic bag, I have manufactured. And that is the law, the regulation. So this began to really perturb people and raise concerns. 
the industry, uh, by which I mean both the product industry and our professional community, responded to the regulations, communicated extensively um, with FDA around these. Um, and I, I want to loop back to good manufacturing practice because there's a lot of value in there. But I will tell you what happened in 2009 in its response to public commentary and in, in its clarification of the regulations that it was putting forth under DeShay for manufacturing, FDA declared that it was going to utilize what is termed enforcement discretion. And <clears throat> enforcement discretion in this case meant that individuals such as naturopaths, um, Chinese herbal medicine practitioners, acupuncturists with training in herbal medicine, uh, herbalists, were exempt from the manufacturing standards as long as they had adequate training in the professional practice and that they were manufacturing, remember that can just be two herbs in a bag, for an individual client with whom they had a practitioner relationship. So that was very, very good news for our community. Yeah, that's because otherwise we have to have clean rooms and all kinds of stuff, right? Well, that's subject to interpretation, but but it's not, you know, it's actually the clean room might or might not have been a requirement. The the issue basically was product tracking and sample retention. Mm. Because I mean, I, I don't want to exaggerate, but I'll say for example, if I took those two herbs and put them in a bag, I would need to have not just precise documentation of where those two herbs came from, but I would actually be smart to keep samples of those two herbs. Oh my goodness. Because most manufacturers will have reference samples and materials associated with each product batch that they manufacture. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. But since we're doing it on a one-by-one, one, sort of custom-made for our patients, we don't need to do this. That's correct. And at the same time, and I don't know when you'd like to move on, to, I mean, 
if you think we've done Deshay well, we could sort of talk about the issues because we don't, we're not, what I would say is this, we don't have a legal obligation to do any of that, but, but very likely we have some, some professional and possibly some ethical obligations to do the things that we can do sensibly to protect our, our patients when we do supply them with, with um, natural products out of our offices. I would love to get more into that in a few minutes, but let's do finish up with Deshay. Absolutely. So that was, I think there are two things that I would really like to share with the listeners um, and folks today about Deshay, because whenever a problem kind of apparently goes away, then we all sort of heave a sigh of relief and go on about our business. Human nature. Um, Yeah. That bless our hearts. Right. Uh, 1994, when Deshay passed, you know, huge, huge sigh of relief from from the supplement community, including us, right? And when we saw Mahuang go away, I think that was concerning to a lot of people. Uh, we were there were there were big fights. In the end, we lost the battle in certain ways. The other thing is that Deshay put us in a category that at the end of the day is not accurate for what we do. And that inaccuracy comes back to bite us from time to time. Um, At certain points of entry, scorpion or earthworm are interdicted. Um, You could make a strenuous argument, um, I think, to say that there's no dietary reason for a human being to consume Huanglian, for example, right? Um, the, the fact is that we use these substances as medicines, and by leaving them in a food category, and by our sort of assuming that that category protects us, we're, we're maybe making a, a mistake, And the other thing is this, our ability, all our clinical practice now, because very few people drop ship or send out to pharmacies or dispensaries for their product preparation for everything that they do, right? But some people do that, but many of us don't. Um, That ability, our legal ability to do that is simply a published choice on the part of the FDA, right? It's a choice. It, they can they can change their mind about that at any time. So, so we're on sort of thin ice. We're on this. exceptionally thin ice, and we, you know, I I would say leadership in our professional community and in the product community certainly aware of this. Um, there are conversations about what to do, but. The bottom line is that this is, we are, we're in a a reasonably good situation, but it's a little false because quite honestly, the use of many of our products is not strictly what you would consider a food use. We have the ability to supply these products and use them in different ways through enforcement discretion. But both of these are situations that we're in do quite frankly to the generosity and open-mindedness of the FDA 
I want to emphasize that FDA is absolutely not not the enemy in this in this process. And in fact, one of the things that I haven't spoken to much is that the good manufacturing practice that FDA regulated and described, that's incredibly important to our industry because many, many of us use prepared medicines. We use granule products. We use things that appear in bottles and, you know, bags and with labels saying what they are. But, you know, if you look at a jar of granules, we have no idea what's in there. Right. And we want to know that the company that we're buying it from has everybody's best interest in mind. Absolutely. So FDA, these regulations are incredibly valuable to us and they're important to the public. They're important to the practitioner. So I am, I just want to underscore the, you know, the, the issue historically with the FDA was, was its initial re- resistance to Deshay. Um, I think it's moved on past that. And quite frankly, the enforcement discretion of, of 2008, that's, or rather 2009, that's a huge, a huge contribution to our community. But the fact of the matter is, and all these wonderful things within Deshay, the fact of the matter is we are essentially practicing Chinese medicine on the basis of a category that isn't really right for it mm-hmm. and a gift, a regulatory gift from FDA but not on the basis of any any legal status or protection um, in a national framework. So when you say gift, could you be a little more specific what that gift is? Well, the gift is the enforcement discretion. Mm-hmm. In other words, it because here's the thing. Our, our industry, um, a colleague of mine, Jason Wright, and I did an analysis of the uh, good manufacturing practices a few years ago for the Council of Colleges of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine, CCAOM, it was operationally impossible, even for a college, to conform to the good manufacturing practices in their dispensary. Right, let alone and and those and and those man, good manufacturing practices included keeping the samples and all, and all the other that, that we talked about and earlier. so forth. I mean, there are a lot mm-hmm. of these things that that are that are low hanging fruit. They're things that that people can do, but the bottom line was to be compliant with this with what we call the current good manufacturing practices, the CGMPs, um, was was an economic impossibility for any acupuncture school, let alone an individual practitioner. Oh, yeah. The overhead alone would kill you. Yeah. Oh, operationally catastrophic. So when FDA published this and said, here's how we're going to proceed based on, and it it was respectful and supportive. It said, based on your education, based on your training, Mm -hmm. based on our expectation that you're dealing with an individual patient and you're making things for them. Right. Right. You're not making, you know, like, thousand bottles of uncle kevin's magical healing elixir and saying that's the enforcement discretion Mm -hmm. i can't do that Mm -hmm. but i can put those two herbs in a bag and give it to my patient yep okay so we we've got that we've got that going for us which is good could be worse uh it i think it lets all of us be in business right now those of us that are doing herbal medicine absolutely that's key 
I, th- I think the thing that, that I worry about is, is simply that it lets all of us be in business right now. And that's, that's what we love and that's what we want to do. And we kind of forget that we are here. Thanks really to FDA's interpretation. In a moment, I want to get into some things that we can do to help make sure that we sort of get to keep our scope of practices this way. But but there's a few other things I wanted to absolutely run by you before we get there. Okay, you you mentioned losing the battle for Mahuang, and I'm curious to know more about that because it seems like Mahuang is available. It's not like it's completely unavailable. How did we lose that battle? You make a good point. And, and Mahuang is available. And it is available in, in the following senses. Um, it can be, well, let me actually, before I complete, let me give you just one piece of background. FDA regulates commerce that crosses our borders, that is, things coming into our country commerce that goes between states Mm -hmm. and it is does not have authority over activities within a state unless that activity crosses a border to another state right um now obviously everybody works with fda states have policies that mirror fda lots of you know so that it operationally that's not really an important distinction but FDA's prohibition on mahuang specifically targeted dietary supplements. They cannot contain mahuang, um, nor can they contain ephedrine extracts or things of that sort. And FDA has the complete ability to interdict imported mahuang that has the destination of a dietary supplement. Mm-hmm. Right? You could import it for other purposes. Um we, you know, I used to joke years ago about people, well, I don't, shouldn't make a border joke, but, you know, I don't think we've reached the point where people are throwing bales of, of mahuang over the border fence. But, you know, that, that is, in a sense, a, a place that you could envision. Um, there are mahuang growers in the U.S. Uh, there are routes of import that are legal, but we lost mahuang to dietary supplements. So I can't buy, for instance, a granular product of, say, uh, mahuang tongue, right, or gugan tongue. That can't be imported in that form because those are all labeled and shipped as dietary supplements. And it contains mahuang, which it, at this point cannot be is on the no-fly zone. Yep, exactly. So mm-hmm. you're correct. I mean, almost every practitioner I know that 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 prescribes in a Shanghan vein or wishes to manage patients, you know, lots of good clinical uses for, for ephedra, typically will have access to those materials. Uh, the enforcement discretion makes that possible. There's some state laws that make it possible. But in terms of the product category, ephedra, mahuang, left the world of dietary supplements. And that underlies this issue. Any herb that we use, we, I don't know if you remember this, but after ephedra went off the market, a lot of the diet companies latched on to bitter orange 
because it contains synephrine. And synephrine is a, is a chemical cousin of ephedrine. It doesn't have the same precise effects. Its risk profile is different. To get it to act in the human system like ephedrine, you have to move to dose levels that are potentially dangerous. It's a super widely distributed, benign uh, item in almost every type of citrus, right? If you're, if you're having marmalade on your toast, you're having synephrine. Um, mm-hmm. But there was a moment where the enthusiasm of the diet supplement industry caused a lot of people in our field to go, oh my goodness, are we going to lose bitter orange because of this process? Right. So we need the, the, the fact that we live in the world of food and we practice as a gift of the FDA is actually something we should be quite cognizant of. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it, it is kind of a privilege in a sense that we get to do this. It's also the thing that is a potential hazard because if you've got a company and their main business is to create a product that they're going to put uh, not a drug claim on, but they're going to use the, the proper words in the proper way to suggest to people that you're going to you know, lose weight or stop smoking or get smarter. Or, I mean, whatever it is that they're making. But they're looking to make a product. That's their main thing. And they're not thinking about it like we do, that we're going to use these substances sort of in a case-by-case for a certain person, but rather we're going to use it because we're going to get this biological effect. And if things go south, we also get the fallout from that. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And, you know, it's funny, uh, last weekend I did a presentation for a, a meeting of emergency medical service personnel. And it was on herbs that you you might encounter when you did a run or a call, things that you know can produce an acute catastrophic effect. And I spent some time just looking at what was new in the world. And yeah, what's on that well, list? Um, let's see what's on that list particularly. Well, I'm gonna I, you'll get angry mail, uh, but if, if if I say that it, uh, kratom, for instance, the uh, Southeast Asian uh, plant, which contains a, a specific opioid analog. There's a lot to discuss about that, but there are Kratom products that are now juiced with um, available pharmaceuticals that are not scheduled. Um, and people aren't really aware. You know, if you buy something green and powdery, you think you're getting a plant, right? Right. Yeah, oh, of course, right? And, and and so often people go, well, it's just a plant. How could that be dangerous? Exactly. And so there's yeah. that. There's a, there's a, a very interesting herb, uh, Yohimbi, which is an mm-hmm. African in origin. Uh, there's also a pharmaceutical, it's alkaloid extract called Yohimbine. Yohimbine is actually a legal pharmaceutical. Um, many, many manufacturers kind of duck a little bit and tuck in extra alkaloidal extract into these products which boosts up their their uh their potency well because you know the 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 truth of the matter is if you have a product you'd like to sell more of it right and you want people to feel an effect from it yeah absolutely i mean that's that's why you know the the thing now with the diet supplements i mean synephrine's a thing uh, but caffeine is still the big win lots and lots of caffeine well, I'm sitting here with a cup of it right now. Yeah, me too. I, I can't possibly say a bad thing about caffeine, but <laughs> I, I would I would say that what 
what consumers aren't always aware of is if if I uh, put in erba mate and guarana um, and uh, green coffee beans and green tea extract, I have just loaded my product with caffeine. Right. Right. Could we come back to this kratom thing for just a moment? I've I've heard a little bit about this. Yeah. And it it's one of those things. It, it every time I come across it, it there's something about it that just feels sketchy to me. I, I'm very uninformed on it. I'd love to get your hit. So I'm actually comparatively uninformed too, because in in my experience, <laughs> saying anything really definitive about any any plant usually takes me somewhere on the order of, I don't know, takes me a significant amount of time, I would say conservatively between six and 10 hours of a, of a deep dive. And I'm not always convinced. The thing, the thing with Kratom, and I should say, full disclosure, my son was once involved with an internet company that, that actually sold the product, but I don't think he'd necessarily agree with what I'm going to say. The, um, the product itself, itself, when it's, when it's a, you know, viably harvested, ethically delivered product seems safe to me Mm -hmm. based on what I've read. Problems emerge, as they so often do, when people use amounts beyond what they should use, combine it with other substances, Mm -hmm. or purchase products that have been enhanced by other other supplements or other pharmaceuticals. And the problem with the traffic on the internet, as, as we all know, is that, you know, it's, it's virtually limitless. What can be available for sale, and just because it's available for sale doesn't mean it's a good idea to buy it or that it's even necessarily legal. One of, one of the things that surprised me when I was preparing the talk were the products that seem to be substantially illegal and yet in the marketplace and that FDA would theoretically or regulatorily have the oper- you know have the ability to go after but i think you know it's it's limitless in recent years this om acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five element and six chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of chi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yeah. Okay. Let's get 
back to some things that we can sensibly do to protect our current ability to use herbs? Well, I, I could make, make a list and, and my, my first one would be by all means become a member of your state or national professional association and contribute money and be aware of legislative and political issues because at the end of the day that's you know the feature of of living in a in a democracy so that for sure i think is important the second is is to become somewhat educated about the issues and and i'm going to chop that into chunks um be sure that you're practicing within your training right which doesn't mean that you can't grow but it means that if you are unfamiliar with how to use an herb or a supplement or a substance, or you're unaware of prescribing practices or treatment methods, you ought to always strengthen your training. I'm a big fan, for instance, of the NCCAOM herbal certification. I think that's a kind of baseline standard for our community. Um, I think that says something to patients and it says something to practitioners. Right. So, ju- so just because you're a licensed acupuncturist, and I'm using air quotes here, herbs falls under the scope of practice of a licensed acupuncturist, you maybe want to think twice about using those herbs if you don't really know what you're doing. No. I mean, as a professional, you know, professionals by definition are, are meant to, to have an area of expertise and to constantly develop and build and know when they know and when they don't know. Mm-hmm. When they don't know is when they learn or they refer. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely right. We just passed a landmark piece of legislation in New York back in 2016, I believe, putting herbal medicine or the use of supplements and natural products in our scope. Um, we unfortunately did not succeed in getting an educational or examination requirement attached to that. And I actually had an acupuncturist say to me, well, I don't need to be trained in herbs because they're now in my scope. Oh my goodness gracious sakes alive. That is terrifying to me. Yes. It was, did not really warm my heart. I have to say, <laughs> as I've gotten older, I try not to just scream when people say stuff, but yeah, that was, that was pretty nuts. Yeah. Well, but, but I mean this, I mean this, this kind of thing is a little bit frightening because we operate in the way that we do, because the FDA seems pretty well reassured that we're policing ourselves, we know what we're doing, and and we're, we can be trustworthy and reliable in knowing when we can move forward and when we should refer. You know, and I think that's realistic. I, I spend a lot of time, and I just, just did another deep dive on this because I'm, I'm doing a presentation for some folks. I spent a lot of time looking at herb drug interaction information, herbal toxicity information, and it's remarkable how little evidence there is of significant risk associated with Chinese herbal medicine. If you leave aside Guangfangji and ephedra, which quite frankly, the risk exposure did not come from our community, but that's a story for for another day. But but if you look at that, we're a fairly safe. And if people are practicing, if they're using things as they've been trained to use them, and they understand what they're using, I actually am very confident that our risk profile is fairly low. Um, 
based on the literature. But public perception is a different matter. Medical perception is a different matter. Um, you can see very uninformed articles and policy statements being written. And boy, go on on the uh, <laughs> the interwebs, as it were, and uh, you know you can see some stuff that causes uh, would cause concern. I take to heart as well your thoughts about joining your state organization, supporting your state organization, uh, whether we like politics or not, whether we like legislation or not, this is the world that we live in. And it, you know, it's really nice having our practices and, and, you know, being able to live the life that we want to live, you know, often a little bit on the edge Mm. of, uh, you know, conventional society. And at the same time, we need people that are looking out for our well-being, right? The whole dry needling thing is another one of those where why would you want to support your state organization? Because they're the ones that are looking out for this stuff. So we don't have to spend all of our days worrying about it. We can just treat our patients and get on with things. I think that's that's absolutely true. And, you know, as and there are, I, I mentioned that I, I gave you a couple of publications and things for your website. Um, there are a couple of useful articles that I did with Jason Wright. They're a little, they're a little aged, but they're still, I think they're interesting. And we're starting to see some publication and some communication about, you know, what I would call simple steps that people can take in their practices to safeguard patients. I mean, if I were going to mention a few, I would mention things like, yeah, give us, uh, give us, give us a few off the top. So all, if you're, if you're giving herbs or supplements to a patient, always take a medication history. Um, the two, the, the two things that I advise people about the most in terms of, um, well, major pharmaceutical interactor is warfarin. The most risky herbal supplement from an interaction point of view is St. John's wort. And the clinical conditions that I advise practitioners to always watch very carefully are people that are medicated with lithium or who are trying to manage their blood sugar. Um, these are places where, where accidents can happen if we're not careful. Uh, I, this is too much detail, but there are certainly ways to search the literature to avoid herb drug interactions. Um, but medication history, understanding the products that you're using, getting them from reputable suppliers, knowing your supply chain is key. Because there are still counterfeit prepared medicines. There are companies that don't necessarily closely adhere to the uh, CGMPs and don't necessarily provide practitioners with information about that. So I would say those would be the simple ones. Um, And keep good records. What did you give your patients? Mm -hmm. Where did you get your products? These are things we probably should be doing anyway, right? Yeah, I would think. This is low-hanging fruit. This is stuff that's pretty much within anybody's everybody's capacity, um, and quite honest. Oh, and the other thing is this: listen to patients when they have problems with your products. Of course, keep lines of communication open. Um, I'll tell you here because I I can't name the company, but as you're probably aware, there's a, a service now called MedWatch that FDA uses that allows pretty much anybody to report a uh, adverse reaction with an herb or a supplement. 
Actually, I'm not familiar with that. Please tell us about it. Okay. Well, this is this this was a standard for pharmaceuticals. It got expanded to supplements. Um, if you just Google MedWatch or type in "I want to report a supplement adverse effect," um, you'll pretty much be driven straight to reporting forms, and those can go in a variety of ways. Ideally. Ideally, if your patient has, say, an upset stomach after taking your formula, you hope they're going to call you, right? Because maybe you can figure out what happened. But let's say they had an upset stomach after taking the supplement you gave them. You still hope they're going to call you, but maybe you think about that and you think, wow, that's not a, that's not a side effect. That's not an anticipated effect. That's, that's not something that I knew could happen. Then you might like to call the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Report it yourself. Yeah, or you might invite the patient to, but very often you might want to do that. And manufacturers under Deshay, another great thing about Deshay, are supposed to do record keeping around this and reporting. And one of the things people don't understand about adverse event reporting is theoretically, if I take your herbal product and fall down the stairs... That can be an associated event. I mean, when we were dealing with the Mahuang, the ephedra reporting, there were people in car accidents who had taken ephedra. Those in the end get winnowed out. They're not, but they're, you cast a broad net when you do adverse event reporting. But that data is actually good for us. Sometimes people think, oh, I'm going to get into trouble or I'm going to get someone into trouble. But what we see from the data that's been collected so far is herbal supplements are actually very safe. And we wouldn't know that without the kind of data that is getting collected. That's good news. That's helpful to know. I haven't read I haven't reviewed it in a while, so you know, I am I am speaking from memory, which in, for me is sometimes a tricky thing. But I few if any deaths, um, serious adverse events you know, requiring hospitalization, things like that, not present. And again, with with things that our clinical community provides to patients and things that are used arising out of our interactions, just not on the radar. Yeah, I mean, I would think unless you're using a lot of mahua, not mahua, futsa, um, you know, I mean, there's, there's certain herbs we know. If you've been trained in herbal medicine, you know, there are certain herbs you want to be careful with it. And you want to monitor your patients and and be on the safe side. It's it's not that dangerous if you know what you're doing. It's I mean, foods is actually I I tend to think of it as very safe if used appropriately because everything exactly everything we use is processed. Um, so the the aconitine alkaloids that that are are risky are actually converted to aconine alkaloids, which are not risky. Um, so you know the but yes good sense. I mean, why, why we're trained in what we do. Right. And, and why we operate at, you know, in the way that we do with the FDA, because we do have the training and we've demonstrated that. And, and so we get to do what we do. Which, which is great. And my only comment is until the FDA changes its mind. Until they change their mind. So anything else, it's getting close. We're going to have to wind this thing down. Oh man, we, we could go for a while. Anything else that we should be attentive to? 
I think we should be aware, and I'm talking more about this at Shenong, but I'll just say this briefly. Um, we should be aware that over the, I would say the last decade, maybe a little longer, but say the last 14 years or so, there have been a series of efforts, eh, decades about right actually, to sort of figure out how we're going to how we're going to solve this problem. Um, there, there's a, been an effort that still exists, but it's not operationalized called the traditional medicines Congress that did a lot of work in 2008 to try to create a regulatory framework that would protect Chinese herbal medicine, people, herbalists, naturopaths, Ayurvedic practitioners, you know, the whole community of natural products, clinicians, um, that, that just became more than any of us could could sustain it was a it was a good effort its work product is still out there um we should be aware that there's some efforts on the part of national professional associations to support some baseline training standards um things that everybody can do to be safe but really what we need to what we need to be thinking about is how we can have national legislative um protection for our clinical practice. Because look, FDA is great. They've been very supportive of us. They protect the public. They protect the public health. But it's a it's it's not a good idea to be have your entire professional practice dependent on the interpretation and generosity of a single federal agency. You know, I, I think with anything, you want to feel like you're on solid ground. We operate at the discretion of the FDA, and as long as things are going fine, good for us. But it could only maybe take one really big adverse event, you know, for the thing to go up in flames. I, I'm not sure that it would, because FDA is a smart agency about clinical practice. Mm. And I think that, you know, if you observe the, the available data, we, we have the occasional, I don't want to even call them bad actors. I'd say we have the occasional enthusiastic clinician or company that kind of pushes the boundaries. And FDA has, you know, clarified what the boundaries are. Um, but mostly our professional community is interested in taking care of patients and protecting their interests is a big thing. I do think if I were going to beg people to do any one thing, I would say join state and national associations be patient with politics because none of this stuff, I mean, our law in New York, which we're all very happy about, that took us over a decade of the most tedious, <laughs> unpleasant, time-consuming political work. It just takes time and it takes money and patience. Kevin, that's such a good point. Patience with politics. We live in a world where things are so instant and we expect our quick hit of dopamine about, you know, whatever it is that we're looking for. And we want things done immediately. And yeah, political processes. Oh my God. They, like you said, they grind on for decades. I'm curious, how do you keep that long term vision as, as you're grinding up against the wheels of politics. How do you how, how do you keep it together and keep motivated and keep moving forward? Well, I mean, I would have to say that there there've definitely been periods where I haven't. I've 
just unplugged myself and said like i i need to not actually even think about this anymore you know i think some of it's dispositional i mean if you have a problem solving disposition then the presence of the problem is a motivation um Mm -hmm. working with people with colleagues i mean i've always been privileged to work with people that i really value and i've never seen anything that isn't isn't a terrific group effort you know so people you know people will step in people will step up people will solve problems you know a little bit like waves rising and falling and that's why i'm saying being patient you know um, ideally, you can make a contribution for a period and move it on. Most of the problems in our community, I think, generally occur when people get impatient or angry with each other, or you know, it's very easy to fall into the the tendency to sort of blame rather than recognize, you know, that there are different perspectives. And it's quite frankly harder to do things that are constructive than than things that are destructive. So tried to return repetitively to our our better intentions i think is is what you do i mean i don't i don't have any good pictures i mean i've just i got involved in this issue particularly when i lived um, and practiced on long island in new york and a, a local it was actually a county legislative body decided they were going to make the possession of mahuang a felony before any other legal thing had occurred nationally or statewide. And I was frustrated by that because I didn't want to go to jail and I didn't want to be fined and I wanted to use Mahuang. And that was uh, about a year-long battle, political, public relations, and otherwise we won um, Mm -hmm. for that moment before other things happened. So I think you have to sort of have a sense that there's a personal impact. And this stuff with FDA is is so distant from our day-to-day experience. Does that make sense? That maybe it doesn't motivate us. Yeah. Oh, no. It's, I mean, it's so distant. I know that I never think about it. And I've really enjoyed having this conversation with you. I feel a little more informed about the situation. I've got a little better understanding of what the FDA uh, is doing with Deshaun and how that affects us. And, and I am especially appreciative of what you said just a few moments ago, that the presence of the problem is the motivation. That, you know, I, I could see taking on something that may take decades to solve, just continually returning to, there's this thing here and it needs some work. So thank you very much for that. Exactly. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun to talk about something in a little detail. I hope you all found that interesting and helpful to learn more about the regulatory situation and background concerning the herbs that we use in our practices every day. This is the first in a number of interviews that will be going up in the next day or two, all from the Shendong Society Conference. So stay tuned. I got more good stuff coming up for you here over the weekend. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, 
That's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.